Hi, I'm Joe. These are audio versions of the essays on my website, joecarlsmith.com. And today I'm reading In Memory of Louise Glick. Louise Glick, one of my favorite poets, died yesterday. I took a writing workshop with her back in 2009. I remember the force and precision of her words as she spoke, slowly, in class. There was a feeling like stones falling, one by one, into place. Like something large was being built, steadily, in simple movements, and you could see it forming. I remember, too, a meeting in her office. It was early in the semester, and she hadn't liked my poem. She wanted me to write from some place closer to where dreams come from, something deeper and more inchoate, some raw edge. She wanted what she had called, in my memory, a, quote, real poem. I read various of her poems in that class, but the book of hers that has most stayed with me and mattered most to me came out later, in 2014, Faithful and Virtuous Night. I associate this book in particular with the dreamlike quality of many of the poems, the way they shift underneath you as you read, full of quiet mystery and surprise. Here's one of my favorites. A Foreshortened Journey I found the stairs somewhat more difficult than I had expected, and so I sat down, so to speak, in the middle of the journey. Because there was a large window opposite the railing, I was able to entertain myself with the little dramas and comedies of the street outside, though no one I knew passed by, no one, certainly, who could have assisted me. Nor were the stairs themselves in use, as far as I could see. You must get up, my lad, I told myself. Since this seemed suddenly impossible, I did the next best thing. I prepared to sleep, my head and arm on the stair above, my body crouched below. Sometime after this, a little girl appeared on the top of the staircase, holding the hand of an elderly woman. Grandmother, cried the little girl, there is a dead man on the staircase. We must let him sleep, said the grandmother. We must walk quietly by. He is at that point in life at which neither returning to the beginning nor advancing to the end seems bearable. Therefore, he has decided to stop here in the midst of things, though that makes him an obstacle to others such as ourselves. But we must not give up hope. In my own life, she continued, there was such a time, though that was long ago. And here she let her granddaughter walk in front of her so they could pass me without disturbing me. I would have liked to hear the whole of her story since she seemed, as she passed by, a vigorous woman ready to take pleasure in life, and at the same time forthright, without illusions. 
but soon their voices faded into whispers, or they were far away. Will we see him when we return? the child murmured. He will be long gone by then, said her grandmother. He will have finished climbing up or down, as the case may be. Then I will say goodbye now, said the little girl. And she knelt below me, chanting a prayer I recognized as the Hebrew prayer for the dead. Sir, she whispered, my grandmother tells me you are not dead. But I thought perhaps this would soothe you in your terrors. And I will not be here to sing it at the right time. When you hear this again, she said, perhaps the words will be less intimidating. If you remember how you first heard them in the voice of a little girl. Why do I love this poem? I wish I could say more directly. It feels like it's touching in me that raw edge. Something about the journey, the unexplained staircase, preparing to sleep, the grandmother's understanding. In my own life, she continued, there was such a time. And the little girl's simple depth. Then I will say goodbye now. The little girl especially has stayed with me, as have a few other similarly dreamlike figures. The conductor in Aboriginal Landscape, the old woman in A Sharply Worded Silence, the concierge in The Denial of Death. The backdrop of these poems is often ethereal and unstable. It seems one way, then smoothly unseems. Right now you are a child holding hands with a fortune teller, Glick writes in Theory of Memory. All the rest is hypothesis and dream. See in Aboriginal Landscape the way the speaker's relationship to the cemetery evolves. Quote, the cemetery was silent. Wind blew through the trees. I could hear very faintly sounds of weeping several rows away, and beyond that, a dog wailing. At length, these sounds abated. It crossed my mind. I had no memory of being driven here, to what now seemed a cemetery, though it could have been a cemetery in my mind only. Perhaps it was a park or if not a park, a, a garden, or bower, perfumed, I now realized, with the scent of roses, du sur de vivre, filling the air, the sweetness of living, as the saying goes. At some point, it occurred to me I was alone. Where had the others gone? My cousins and sister, Caitlin and Abigail, by now, the light was fading. Where was the car waiting to take us home? End quote. And yet many of the human figures the speaker encounters have some kind of elusive understanding, like the grandmothers on the staircase. The sort of depth and steadiness that comes from having seen already and not looked away. Here, for example, is the conductor. Quote, Finally, in the distance, I made out a small train, 
stopped, it seemed, behind some foliage. The conductor lingering against a doorframe, smoking a cigarette. Do not forget me, I cried, running now over many plots, many mothers and fathers. Do not forget me, I cried when at last I reached him. Madam, he said, pointing to the tracks. Surely you realize this is the end. The tracks do not go further. His words were harsh, and yet his eyes were kind. This encouraged me to press my case harder. But they go back, I said, and I remarked their sturdiness, as though they had many such returns ahead of them. You know, he said, our work is difficult. We confront much sorrow and disappointment. He gazed at me with increasing frankness. I was like you once, he added, in love with turbulence. Now I spoke as to an old friend. What of you, I said, since he was free to leave. Have you no wish to go home, to see the city again? This is my home, he said. The city, the city is where I disappear. End quote. And here's the old woman in a sharply worded silence. Quote, when I was young, she said, I liked walking the garden path at twilight. And if the path was long enough, I would see the moon rise. That was for me the great pleasure. Not sex, not food, not worldly amusement. I preferred the moon's rising. And sometimes I would hear at the same moment the sublime notes of the final ensemble of The Marriage of Figaro. Where did the music come from? I never knew. Because it is the nature of garden paths to be circular, each night after my wanderings I would find myself at my front door, staring at it, barely able to make out in darkness the glittering knob. It was, she said, a great discovery, albeit my real life, end quote. My real life. How do you discover your real life? How do you write a real poem? Part of it for Glick is gazing and speaking with frankness. Forthright and without illusions. People call her poetry austere and terse. She has, one senses, no time for bullshit. From October, quote, It is true there is not enough beauty in the world. It is also true that I am not competent to restore it. Neither is there candor, and here I may be of some use. End quote. But what she strips away in pursuit of candor leaves something luminous. She is direct, but not dry. Indeed, in her hands, 
Simple words take on strange power. Quote, I want you. Quote, you are all that is wrong with my life and I need you and I claim you. Quote, it's not the earth I'll miss. It's you I'll miss. Here's another of my favorites. The wild iris. At the end of my suffering, there was a door. Hear me out. That which you call death, I remember. Overhead, noises. Branches of the pine shifting. Then nothing. The weak sun flickered over the dry surface. It is terrible to survive as consciousness buried in the dark earth. Then it was over. That which you fear, being a soul and unable to speak, ending abruptly, the stiff earth bending a little, and what I took to be birds darting in low shrubs. You who do not remember passage from the other world, I'd tell you I could speak again. Whatever returns from oblivion returns to find a voice. From the center of my life came a great fountain. Deep blue shadows on azure seawater. End quote. I've returned especially to that last line. From the center of my life came a great fountain. Is that the great discovery? The poem speaks of a door at the end of suffering. Was there somewhere a glittering knob? The other Glick poem that has really stayed with me is this one, from a series where she sometimes speaks to God from her garden. Vespers. In your extended absence, you permit me use of earth, anticipating some return on investment. I must report failure in my assignment, principally regarding the tomato plants. I think I should not be encouraged to grow tomatoes. Or if I am, you should withhold the heavy rains, the cold nights that come so often here, while other regions get 12 weeks of summer. All this belongs to you. On the other hand, I planted the seeds. I watched the first shoots like wings tearing the soil. And it was my heart broken by the blight. The black spot so quickly multiplying in the rows. I doubt you have a heart in our understanding of that term. You who do not discriminate between the dead and the living, who are, in consequence, immune to foreshadowing, you may not know how much terror we bear. The spotted leaf, the red leaves of the maple falling even in August, 
in early darkness. I am responsible for these fines. It feels like there's a building pain in this poem. The heavy rains, the cold night, and then that breaking blight and the black spots spreading. And then that last line, that taking it on. I am responsible for these vines. She loves the earth, and it causes her such pain. See also her 2004 October. Quote, Is it winter again? Is it cold again? Didn't Frank just slip on the ice? Didn't he heal? Weren't the spring seeds planted? Didn't we plant the seeds? Weren't we necessary to the earth? The vines, were they harvested? And see, too, her warnings in the sensual world. I caution you as I was never cautioned. You will never let go. You will never be satiated. You will be damaged and scarred. You will continue to hunger. Your body will age. You will continue to need. You will want the earth, then more of the earth. Sublime, indifferent. It is present. It will not respond. It is encompassing. It will not minister. Meaning, it will feed you. It will ravish you. It will not keep you alive. End quote. She knew well that she was going to die. My body, she writes in Crossroads, now that we will not be traveling together much longer, I begin to feel a new tenderness towards you, very raw and unfamiliar, like what I remember of love when I was young. End quote. And loss is everywhere in her poetry. See, e.g. in Primavera, quote, Alas, very soon everything will disappear. The bird calls, the delicate blossoms. In the end, even the earth itself will follow the artist's name into oblivion. End quote. The artist in that poem leaves no signature, just a drawing of the sun in the dirt, and, quote, a mood of celebration. And in her acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize, recorded less than six months before her death from cancer, Glick seems attracted to a type of anonymity, or at least to the intimacy of encountering her readers in private, rather than in the public sphere, perhaps in a fortune teller's tent holding hands, with the world as mere hypothesis. She quotes Dickinson as an example of this intimacy. Quote, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody, too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. Glick admits to wanting, wanting readers but she wants to reach them, quote, singly, one by one. Quote, you hear this voice, she writes in October. 
This is my mind's voice. Specifically, though, she wanted her readers to participate somehow in her poetry. When Eliot says, quote, let us go then, you and I, Glick thinks he is asking something of the reader. She is, too. Asking what? Well, many things, presumably. And the individual poems are the best place to look. In general, though, I think she asks for candor, and more for some sort of intensity and directness of spirit. Perhaps it is a stretch to say that Glick's is spiritual poetry, but she appears on the page as fiercely alive and attuned, in a world simultaneously dreamlike and raw, mythical and mundane. How do you honor someone who has lived the way Glick in her poetry appears to live? By meeting them where they seek to stand. By searching out the same real life they sought. That greatest discovery. Here's to the fountain she found. <laughs>